Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. I'm honoured to be joined on the stage this afternoon by one of the country's foremost political minds. And he's an interesting one because it doesn't belong to a politician. George Megalogenis is a journalist and author of the popular Meganomics blog published by The Australian. And he's described in our office, or at least, as the George Clooney of Australian political journalism. <laughs> Having spent 11 years in the Canberra Press Gallery and the 13 years or so since on the news pages and in our TV screens, George has earned himself a spot amongst the nation's most respected political commentators. A thing you would need to know about George is that he's one of those rare types who is admired from all sides. Astonishingly, astonishingly, his 2006 book, The Longest Decade, was launched by both John Howard and Paul Keating, although it was on separate events. George's latest book, The Australian Moment, which will be on sale after this, party plug, examines the events that shaped our country's good fortune and our national character. And it's an extraordinary read as well. Please make him welcome. Thank you, Dennis, and thank you to everyone for coming, and Carol Schwartz as well for, uh, for making the original call. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a good half hour to have a crack at me, so lots of questions from the floor. I want to invite them. After I've given a very, very brief presentation on basically what my thinking was behind the book. Now, the book's first and primary goal is to try and talk up the country. And one of the reasons why I want to talk up the country is I think, uh, you know, if we had a show of hands, not that I'm going to ask for it because I assume they'll all shoot up, our leadership at a political level has been pretty uh, mediocre, I think, the last few years. And it's not something people are consciously set out to do. I, think, I don't think people go into public life to bore on behalf of the country, but uh, <laughs> the group on both sides, and I do say this equally, the group on both sides, you know, wax and wane between not wanting to talk the country up and deliberately wanting to talk the thing down for narrow political advantage. Now, the, now, this book was a, a number of years in, in the sort of gestation. The global financial crisis and our rather heroic, by the rest of the world's standards, our rather heroic escape was one big thought that was going to go into this book, trying to explain how Australia got to a particular position where it was the last rich nation standing. But the other part of it, as I mentioned, was to talk the place up. The longer I thought about this book, the more I wanted to be able to show this generation an aspiring uh, uh, and the next aspiring generation of public figures, uh, people in the bureaucracy, people in the community sector even, what good reform looks like, what the country looks like when it isn't working well, and that is for some of you in your room you wouldn't remember it, I certainly didn't remember it, but when you have a good look at the 70s in Australia, you see what the country looks like when, it, when it's having a, a collective crack-up. Having a look at what the 80s and 90s looked like in terms of you know, some rather big-picture economic and social reforms and maybe telling the present day and the next generation that these things aren't easily done. Uh, the media cycle might want to encourage you to do this 24-hour thing, which is try to survive the day or try to win the day. But in the long run, there are always people like me at the other end of the conversation that are in the, 
you know, the sort of national storytelling. Uh, we're not going to pay too much attention to people who've had a brilliant 20-year run in the media but don't have any achievement to show for it. We're more interested in the long run. And I say this as gently as I possibly can to the, to the present generation in Canberra, that is in Parliament House, not the city, the building, that uh, most of you won't be remembered 10 and 20 years from now if there is no achievement to show for it. Now... Thank you. One of the thoughts after the book has been sent, and every author will, will give you this, uh, this minor complaint, there's always a thought that, 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 that coalesces after you hit send, like the thing you wish you'd written, you'd, you'd, you'd written into the pages of the book but you trust after you've put it out there that other people are going to have this, this thought with you. Now, it's occurred to me as I'd gone through the history, now the book itself starts roughly in 1973 with the first oil shock, I use external events to retell our domestic story. So rather than just doing a Gough won an election and then this happened and this, this happened, a uh, view of Australian, modern Australian politics, I've had a look at the external shocks and how they informed the Australian reaction. Now, the Australian reaction, as I, as, as I, as I flagged in the 70s, wasn't all that good. But the thought that, that hit me after the book was written was that there is this thing called national memory and at roughly at the 20 or 30 year mark, countries start to forget the mistakes they've made in the past and that's at the point at which they start to repeat them. Now, I came across a very, very interesting quote. Uh, some of you obviously might have been around at the time, but when Gough Whitlam first went to China in 1971 as opposition leader, which is probably the single most important act of diplomacy that echoes still in the present day, i.e. rising in our region is the next big economic superpower... In fact, it is a superpower now. Um, and Australia somehow managed to luck into the, uh, into the conversation to bring Beijing out from the cold, albeit from opposition. So Australia did this thing in 1971. But there was a conversation that Gough Whitlam was having with the then Foreign Minister Chow En Lai. And bear in mind the context. The yellow peril was still a big issue in, in Australian public affairs. We were in the middle of Vietnam and China was still isolated from the international community. Now, in his conversation, Whitlam had said straight out uh, to Joanne Lai, the American people have broken, and this is on the 5th of July, by the way, 1971, just to give you a, an idea of how long ago this is. The American people have broken President Lyndon Baines Johnson, and if Richard Milhouse Nixon does not continue to withdraw his forces from Vietnam, they will destroy him similarly. The Australian people have had a bitter experience in going all the way of LBJ. They know the American people made him change his policy and they will never again allow an American president to send troops to another country in this way. This is 1971. Joan Lai says back to him, I have similar sentiments to you. Such a very good appraisal of the American people. I do believe the American people will rise up and restrict the policies of the American president and overthrow him. Now, this is a year and a half before the Watergate burglary. So it's not a bad call from the uh, Chinese foreign minister that the American people would rise up and overthrow President Nixon, but I don't think they understood. I don't think he, I don't think he was actually making that prediction. Now, as I say, one of the things, and this is a thought that I wish I had in the book, but I'm kind of comfortable talking about it after the fact, because you can't... You would, I, would have, I still would have held on to the thing and it wouldn't be out there now. But this thought about national memory is interesting. 20 years on from Goff's observation about Americans never going into a war of choice again and Australians not following them, 20 years on from that observation, George Bush Sr. did not invade Iraq. This is Gulf War I. Drove the Iraqis out of Kuwait, but didn't follow Saddam's forces all the way to Baghdad. But, 20, but 32 years on, in 2003, his son, George Bush Jr., did, and, of course, we followed. And what does that tell you about national memory? 
The Americans and the, and the Australians hadn't forgotten Vietnam, but they had underestimated the risk of losing a war of choice. Now, Bush Sr. had served in the Navy during the Second World War as a fighter pilot. He flew dozens of combat missions and was a decorated war hero. His son was in the te Texas Air National Guard and never went to Vietnam. So between father and son, between the 20-year governing memory to the 30-year governing memory, we're back in Iraq again. Now, the reason why I mention this almost as an afterthought to having hit send on the manuscript on the book, is that Australia is at this tipping point now at roughly the 20-year mark of its memory of its last recession. Now, I suspect that the last recession we had in 1991 was one of the sort of X factors that helped us through the global financial crisis of late 2008, early 2009. You recall the media was sweating, and this is one instance where the short-term focus for a government actually did help the government and did help the country. There was this incessant focus on the technical definition of, re of a recession, which was two quarters of negative growth. So if GDP was, GDP was definitely going to go backwards in that December quarter of 2008 because the entire world economy had fallen off a cliff in that final quarter of 2008. But Kevin Rudd, the Treasury and the Reserve Bank, now even though Rudd wasn't in Parliament in 1990-91 when we had the recession we had to have, uh, whether he was or wasn't a home borrower when interest rates were 17%, that's sort of a moot point. But in 2008, the governing memory of Australia was we cannot have this thing called two quarters of negative growth. So they pumped all the cash into the system to avoid exactly that. They knew they were going to get one bad quarter, but they thought the second quarter, if they could get the second quarter up, there'd be this confidence effect and the rest of the country will go back to work or wouldn't get thrown out of work. Now, like I say, that's, we're at that outer reach of that particular, that particular memory that might get you through an experience like that. 20-something years out from a recession is also 20-something years of uninterrupted growth. Now, one of the other thoughts I've had since the book has, uh, has gone out is that I, in my own name and probably on behalf of all my colleagues and former colleagues in Canberra, have to declare a war on whinging because at the 20-year mark after a very deep recession but 20 years of uninterrupted prosperity, this country has got a lot more going for it than not. But and this is, gets, gets back to the point about the leadership, and the leadership is quite mediocre at the moment because this great big thing called Middle Australia, which is a thing you always want to look after, but I'm about to explain to you why you can only look after it up to a point before you've got to let it look after itself. This great big thing called Middle Australia has been complaining for a number of years now about the cost of living. Mark Latham talked about easing the squeeze. Kevin Rudd and Wayne Swan were talking about grocery prices and fuel prices, and now Tony Abbott is talking about carbon tax and the mining tax and all that stuff. So basically for the last five or six years, politics has created this new price, which is this idea that no one can be worse off. And like I say, bear in mind what I'm talking about, collective memory. If you're at the 15 to the 20-year mark of uninterrupted prosperity and you get through a GFC to a politician who sweats the media cycle and the polling cycle... The idea that nobody will be worse off apparently is a logical thought. It actually isn't a logical thought, certainly not from a public policy perspective. And the reason why it isn't a logical thought, and I'm going to take you through a couple of numbers, um, and this is numbers that now, this is looking back at the federal budget and the way the federal budget had been behaving when the first phase of the mining boom was kicking in. So this is about 2003, 2004, 2005. Again, sorry to belabour the point, but at the national memory point, we're starting to get to that second decade of uninterrupted prosperity. Now, the normal thing you'd expect for a budget to do, uh, and especially after a thing like the GST was implemented, you'd still expect 
your budget to be weighted towards the, the have-nots rather than the haves, i.e. people in need of means-tested assistance as opposed to people with jobs who could do without. Now, a very funny thing happened in 2003-04. This is the year that the baby bonus was supersized and the year of that competition between Howard and Latham for the uh, hearts and minds of working mums. Now, that year, 2003-04, was the first time on record in the federal budget that family payments... Now, family payments, of course, is not just for those with jobs, but it's also for sole parents without jobs, but the totality of family payments in the federal budget exceeded, for the first time on records, payments to the disabled, the unemployed and the sick, and to veterans and their beneficiaries. Quite an extraordinary figure if you think through what it means. This is at some point in the last decade, for whatever reason, and this is something I wish I'd picked up at the time because I'd have been yelling and screaming even louder about middle-class welfare than I do today. Um, at some point we decided that the haves deserve more direct assistance from the federal government than the have-nots. By 2004-05, tertiary education uh, was receiving... I'll just get you the figure here, 2.5% of total government spending. Non-government schools, i.e. the thing that's in the state jurisdiction, the federal government decided to deliver more money to parents sending their kids to private schools for the first time on record in 2004-05 than the federal government in its own name was spending on tertiary education. Now, these two things to me was, was an early sign that we were starting to get a bit soft as a country. Now, the GFC, in a way, interrupted this and helped us think big picture again. And, look, the pet theory, basically, is Australia is pretty good, pretty good in a crisis, one of the world's best managers of crisis, according to The Economist magazine in the 80s. Uh, and if you think about episodes like the Banana Republic, which we got out of pretty well, you know, look at the Greeks today, and, you know, they obviously don't have a Hawke and a Keating and a Peter Walsh and a John Dawkins and a Ralph Willis to sit there and say, right, the financial markets are coming after us. What can we do while holding our society together to impress them and to continue our project? Obviously, we do well in crisis. The GFC is another example of a crisis we did well in. But, as I say, the softness was beginning to emerge in the middle of that last decade. Now, of course, the budget has gone into deficit and there's now this competition between winners and between losers from deregulation to hang on to the thing that they were used to in the middle of the last decade. Now, the community's expectations are about here in terms of government spending, about 24 to 25% of GDP. The community's willingness to pay in terms of revenue is about down here, 22 to 23% of GDP. Now, that is essentially the post-GFC story. Government spending hasn't blown out, notwithstanding what some politicians will tell you. Government spending is pretty much of the order it was all the way through that last decade when things were starting to get a bit soft. But our capacity to pay has fallen a bit because of the GFC. Now, that two percentage point gap, and this is a structural analysis I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with, that two percentage point gap is roughly $30 billion a year. Now, if we have another hit from the rest of the world, there'll be another big budget deficit for people to complain about. Now, how do you want to think this way through in the community sector? Do you want to tell people we're prepared to let go this, this and this? to step down to, to the, new, uh, the new normal in revenue? Or do you want to encourage people to offer cuts in exchange for grand bargains on the revenue side to make, pardon me, so that the two lines meet at some, you know, stability point at about 23 or 24% of GDP? The actual numbers themselves are less important than the concept. The concept is do you give up stuff or do you say here's a better way to collect the revenue, here's a better way to spend the money? Now... 
in the budget just been the National Disability Insurance Scheme is in there. It's not fully funded, but it is one of those things, one of those ideas that if it's properly, if it's properly uh, executed, you know, we'll have the country talking, talking itself up in the next 10 or 20 years in the same way we talk about national superannuation and Medicare. Now, there is an interesting bit of data I want to share with you. There's about 410,000 people. Well, these are numbers you wouldn't be unfamiliar with. 410,000 people in the long run that will be in the NDIS. The mining sector, at the peak of its powers, is employing 250,000 people. So that's just over half the people who will be on the NDIS. Now, in conceptual sense, this is a broadsheet concept, not a tabloid concept. You'll never read this in the Herald Sun. So the question is, at which point does public policy look after the able-bodied young man who's going to get a six-figure uh, salary to drive a truck in the Pilbara versus the not-quite-able-bodied young man or woman who needs wheelchair access at their job, at a job that they do qualify for? Now, it's not a bad question to ask yourself because it's a question, if you, if you, if you don't do it with, um, with a sense of special pleading, it might focus the minds of some of your local members and some of the people in the federal parliament. There is this thing called a super cycle and it's on, and it's on for young and old. Uh, China will probably go at this rate, give or take the odd dip, for about another 20 years. Before China's finished industrialising, India's going to catch up with it and may pass it. Australia is in a position that's never been before. There are two equivalent periods in our national history where... A, through windfall, this is a gold mining boom of the 1850s, B, through active national choice to, 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 to build a nation, to build a bigger nation, after the end of the Second World War, the post-war migration program. At those two points, Australians were prepared to step up their ambition and they actually grew a much bigger country in the process. They might take out thought, and I'm just mindful of the time, might take out thought about what the mining boom might be in the long, in the long run for everyone in this room, but more importantly nationwide in terms of uh, public policy, there is a 20-year opportunity, give or take some busts along the way, to do the equivalent of what happened after the gold rush in the 1850s, essentially when this city was built out of the, uh, out of the windfall and some of the country towns like Ballarat were built out of the windfalls of the gold rush, or this idea of a medium-sized country that was built after the Second World War post-migration period. How do you do it? And this is the big question. How do you do it? Uh, by the middle of this decade, even on the lowest case scenario for population growth, we get to 30 million as a people. 30 million requires an, an extra couple of cities. An extra couple of cities from a population of 23 million to 30 million. You can't all fit them in Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane and Perth. I mean, you can't send them all out to the bush. To accommodate another 7 or 8 million people, you're going to have to start thinking big about how to build another how to build another city. Now, this thought hasn't penetrated Canberra yet, unfortunately. But in the 1940s and the 1950s, coming out of the Second World War, in the 1850s, when Australia was not yet a federation, but there was still a sense of opportunity about this place, it was easy for the people at the time and easy for their leaders at the same time to think big. Now, the reason why you want to think big now is two parallel global trends. Obviously, the world economy is telling us to dig. And it makes it uncomfortable for everyone in, in my business and in the community sector and in this great big thing called Middle Australia where the global economy says there's only just one thing I want you to do and that is to dig. And that is to dig just in a couple of locations. Bit of WA, half of South Australia now that the world's greatest, largest open cut mine will be, will, will be, will be almost on stream and bits of Queensland. 
Uh, now, that isn't, that isn't obviously a way to run a country, but it is a terrific opportunity because the rest of the West is in decline. Australia is in a region that is growing and it's in a region that is prepared to pay for our stuff. But there's a second competition here and it's a global competition for, and this is in the education space. That's why I mentioned that figure before about private school funding. In the education space at the moment, in the 80s, the previous government, the uh, Hawke-Keating government, hit on this idea of a virtual user pay model in, in higher ed. That's through Hex. The Howard government hit on a second thing, and almost by accident we discovered this new export uh, earner called um, the overseas student, the full fee-paying overseas student. Now, the thing that we haven't come to terms with yet is that China and India are not going to keep sending their their best and their brightest here to be educated. Sooner or later, America's going to come back again. And the thing that always happens in Australia is our best and brightest tend to leave the country anyway to, you know, for bigger opportunities. If you're going to build a big country, like a genuine medium-sized power in the region, one that can hold its own in the region, I, my point here is if you're going to think big as a country, what happens out of the mining boom isn't the beginning and the end of your story. What happens out of the mining boom isn't here's an extra billion dollars for, for, for my vested interest. What happens out of the mining boom is this once in a half-century opportunity to do this other thing, which is to grow a brain economy. Now, the brain economy, once you, get your, once you get your public policy thinking along those lines, the brain economy actually then starts to click into all the other stuff. NDIS seems like it makes more sense if the education system is also kicking in. Um, the question of what you do... With, with, with especially the young men who, uh, who are literally unemployable at the moment for various reasons, is you make sure you don't have another generation that gets lost to that. It doesn't mean you train people for the mines, but you train people for whatever else that might be going around. And I think it's very important to think about this. Thing. Sooner or later, it's not that Asia's going to run over the top of us. Sooner or later, when a lot of these rising powers in Asia get to first world status, get to fully industrialised, their people, their middle classes completely outnumber ours. Now, the competition, the competition for their attention is up here. It's not in how well we dig because the mining sector only needs a quarter of a million people to be able to function at, at, at world's best practice. You know, if we're going to get to 30 million, uh, we're going to have to start thinking a little more laterally about how we accommodate the next 7 million and how to make sure that the next 7 million, not necessarily are people you want to come here, uh, but that the next 7 million are part of the greatest place on earth. Now, to make them part of the greatest place on earth, we have to start thinking about raising the tone of our national debate. Stopping the boats, ending the waste, population policy, which was Julia Gillard's counter at the last election, that is definitely not going not to serve the national interest in the long run because people like me 10 and 20 years from now are going to say we missed the opportunity. Um, I'm actually a glass half full person. I think the very fact of what's been going on in the last few years in Canberra and the recognition internally on both sides of politics that this thing cannot last is the first sign that we're about to correct. It may take a couple of election cycles before we fully correct. But the other thing is, if we start losing people and all we're doing is digging and the people who get left behind don't belong, uh, then, then obviously something like that is going to force us to, uh, to shape up. But I'd much rather see this happen from a position of opportunity, uh, not Australia responding to crisis again. We've been pretty good in the last 10 or so years of responding to crises. Asian financial crisis didn't flip us out. We missed the tech wreck and, of course, we're still standing after the GFC. Um, but the fact that we're able to pull those three things off 
next thought, and this is, in a sense, this is why I left the ending of the book open, the next thought is how do you grow a great country? How do you create a great country? And for everyone in this room, within your own sectors, it's, uh, it, it, might seem a little, it might seem a little beyond your immediate constituency, but it isn't beyond your immediate constituency because we're in grand bargain territory now where people have to start giving things up. Not your sector, by the way, but people in the middle have to start giving things up on behalf of their children and their grandchildren. And as I say, there's a lot of, there's a, a lot of good things you can spend money on. There's a lot of things we probably don't need to spend money on. But there's a serious job ahead of us so we can say to ourselves in, say, 2020 or 2030 that we had the equivalent of the growth spurt after the gold rush or the growth spurt after the post-war migration program. I'll leave you with that hopefully half-glass-full thought and take questions on any topic. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.